The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 41 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. So, wow, last week was a big week. Vikas Bhatia is one connected dude. Vikas, of course, he's the CEO and founder of Just Protect. Lots of respect for him out there in the industry. Huge, huge, huge social media presence in response to him, you know, appearing on last week's show to talk about how to break into the cybersecurity space and start a new career. So, we know there's a ton of People wanted to take advantage of the talent crisis occurring into the foreseeable future in the market right now. We talk about that a lot on this show. So lots of people really appreciated what he had to say, even seasoned professionals. We got a lot, of, a lot of feedback because folks are looking for roadmaps to optimize their earning potential in the cybersecurity world. And Vikas had a lot of great advice around how to do just that. And he also had some very potent things to say about the current climate around the importance of third-party risk assessments and how to get them done in an efficient and effective manner, which is a challenge to everyone in the industry right now, and which is, of course, his expertise in the core value proposition of his company over at Just Protect. So if you missed last week's show, don't forget to check it out. Vikas Bhatia, CEO and founder of Just Protect, on last week's episode. That's episode number 40 of Task Force 7 Radio. Now, how do you listen to last week's episode, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. You can find Task Force 7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and, of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at voiceamerica.com. So, all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fix. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out. TF7 Radio playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And, as always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. We like when you subscribe. So... I really did think last week's episode was great. I listened to it a few times myself, <laughs> even though I did the show. Obviously, we've been kicking some butt over the last few weeks, and I think 
we've really started to differentiate ourselves from any of the other cybersecurity podcasts out there. And I said it from the beginning, but being 41 episodes into it now, it's really starting to become apparent to our listeners and people are starting to mention it to me and it's great. It's a great feeling. Um, we are still the only cybersecurity radio show that I know of that consistently provides our listeners one full hour of content every week. Unless, of course, Monday falls on a holiday and our producers are off, something like that, which happens a lot. There's a lot of holidays on Monday, actually. And I think there's like three in the last uh, 40 weeks or so. But in, in that case, we run an encore of one of your favorite shows. And that always works out really well. But otherwise, we're out there every week producing quality cybersecurity content for our listeners on a variety of different topics in all the cybersecurity domains, which keeps things really interesting. It's just not one domain over and over again. We, we really mix it up. So, so what do I mean by that really exactly though? I mean, I mean, we just don't read the cybersecurity news to you every day for 15 minutes. That's not what we do here. We usually do a cybersecurity news and analysis segment when there's a lot going on in the news space because people like to hear that. People like to hear what's going on and current events is always very popular. And this is pretty often. We've only skip that cybersecurity news and analysis maybe just a few times. We're going to do it today one more time. But this, we do this with an emphasis on the analysis piece. And we've had dozens of some of the world's most preeminent and prolific cybersecurity professionals on this show giving their take on the threats we face, the risk and challenges our organizations have to mitigate, as well as their view as to what is going on in the cybersecurity industry in general. And we cover it all, intelligence, investigations, incident response. I mean, we've been down DLP, SSDLC, ASM, IAM, VA. We do it all, hunting, pen testing, red teaming. We really cover the gamut of the domains. We break it down for you in a way that's interesting to our listeners. It's easy to understand. And you can walk away with some knowledge, hopefully, that you didn't have before you actually started listening to the show. So I really appreciate all of you out there. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to tell your friends. It's been organic growth here on Task Force 7 Radio. I owe the success of the program to all of you listening right now because we haven't really put a, a dollar of digital marketing into this yet. So thanks so much for, for listening, and I really appreciate your support. So that leads me to tonight's show. Tonight, we're going to have one of the most experienced cybersecurity executives in the world on the show with us right here on Task Force 7 Radio. Chris Kenworthy is here with us this evening. Chris is a seasoned cybersecurity executive with more than 23 years' experience in this industry. He's been a principal in at least seven venture-funded startups, all in cyber, all in cybersecurity, lots of experience and talent here, and he worked at RSA twice. He spent nine years at McAfee as a senior vice president of their enterprise business, and at McAfee, Chris's responsibilities included GTM, that's go-to-market due diligence, in their commercial M&A activities, and he launched the technologies from acquisitions into McAfee's marketing, sales, and customer base. So we maintain a strong connection with startups and the evolution of cyber technologies as they progressed over the last couple of decades. Chris has been a board director and advisor and offers GTM consulting services to a multitude of cybersecurity companies and actually way too many to even name. So Chris, welcome to the show. It's an honor and privilege to have you on with us this evening. Thank you very much, George. I'm really excited to be here, and congratulations on 40 sessions prior to this. This is great. Hey, thanks so much. Um, so, look, let's kick it off with a little bit about you and the impressive career that you've had and what you've done. I know this is very interesting to a lot of people. You've been a principal with over seven cybersecurity startups, which is amazing in and of itself, which is it, it just, it's on sort of unprecedented in some, in some, other, in some respect when you see the success and the track record of a success and the demonstrable 
on track record of what you've done with those companies. So which one was your first and what was that like? And people like to hear about, you know, how this all got started. Sure. Sure. Well, way back, farther back than I'd like to admit, 1993, I was a co-founder of a startup. Some friends and I got together. No one knew anything about startups, but uh, we had a uh, banker who said, you know what, the new networking that's coming out, uh, bandwidth is limited and it's expensive. So why don't we invent a company that will control bandwidth and allocate it based on priority? So time, certain times of day, certain functions demand bandwidth and other functions have to wait. So we put this together as a startup and realized right away that our in-band control signals had to be encrypted so that uh, no one could mess with them. Uh, we were all hardware engineers, so we looked up encryption in the Motorola chipbook and found a DES chip. And our software guy uh, stood up and said, I got to figure out how to generate two private keys in distant locations so DES would work. Uh, assuming man in the middle was there, we're, we're starting to read about security now, uh, we developed a scheme for developing DES keys. I think we might have invented an SSL prototype at the time, but uh, Netscape ended up running with it, patented it, and they did very well. We ended up with an, a small encrypted modem business, but that was 94, 95, just when the internet was starting to come out. Right. We had a look at that and said, oh my gosh, you know, there's going to be a whole lot more need for security here. So no doubt, no doubt. So that was the beginning. We're talking about modems right now. So talk about, talk about, tell me a little bit about some of the things that you did with some of these other companies as well. So there was, there was, I think at least seven or more companies. What other startups were you involved in and sure. what was your role there? Yep, exactly. Yeah. It, um, after that, uh, if you will, the secure modem company, um, I had a stint. That was my first stint with RSA. And, uh, I was selling those 60-second tokens, the Secure ID tokens, right. That's way back when. Learned, learned everything about remote access when it was more dial-up than network. Uh, internet was just barely getting off the ground, but boy, did that change everything. But I've also done the startups with uh, SSL VPNs, uh, with PKI technology. I remember every year was going to be the year of PKI. Uh, we got in and got out at the right time and uh, were able to sell uh, our startup excerpt to uh, RSA, and that was my second stint at RSA. Um, and uh, that became the key on product at RSA uh, throughout the years after that. I also did some work with vulnerability management. I became the sales and marketing lead at Foundstone, um, and that, uh, you may recall, in the early 2000s, it did very well in the vulnerability management pen test space. Yep. Uh, there are seven or eight uh, current startups out there in the cyberspace whose CEOs came from Foundstone. So it was a great group, um, very exciting times. And that started me off at Maxi and stayed there nine years after that 2004 acquisition. Since then, I've also done uh, some mobile work. Uh, we all a few years ago thought mobile security was going to take off. Interestingly, very few have made money in that space, but you know, that's kind of a, a head scratcher in terms of uh, where security is and where it's going. But uh, I uh, worked for a mobile app security and MDM company there. Uh, we were sold to Proofpoint um, and then got involved with a SIM and a cloud-based uh, company. Um, and that was a company that did pretty interesting work uh, using uh, ArcSight SIM as a service in the cloud. 
And that's where I learned a whole lot about SIM, uh, use cases, and uh, everything that goes along with it uh, in terms of setting up or, or developing uh, services for SOCs. Um, I've also done threat modeling and application security. And most recently, um, talking with some companies now in the IoT space. So it's a very active, uh, evolving market, as you know. But uh, I try and kind of get up early and do a lot of reading, and stay out in front and see who's hot. No, no doubt. I mean, you've been, in addition to these the, the successes as an executive you've had with these startups, you've also been on the board and advisory boards of numerous companies. What's it like to come in there and help these companies develop and 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 bring their 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 uh, products to market and be successful. Yeah, you know, that's, that's very exciting because um, you get into a small startup who has a little bit of investment. They always need more. Um, and I can join either as a full board director uh, or an advisor. Um, there's uh, the really, the difference really is just how deep you're in there. But beyond that, you know, I'm providing uh, services to them and advice. We have meetings several times. I tend to round up on my activity there. So if I'm doing any kind of work for those people, you know, I, I jump in with both feet um, and help them kind of define and simplify their product. And really the go to market aspect of it is so important. There's so many, so many good technologies out there that just won't make it uh, because their go to market investment or understandings are underwhelming. And that is the technology doesn't uh, sell itself. It needs to be well positioned and, and clarified. And I can help a whole lot there. Um, I've done a lot of overseas work there too. A couple companies uh, in Spain and the UK um, and help them talk to one right now in Taiwan that I may help come to the US. And that also helps them understand the differences in the international markets. Um, and ultimately, I kind of pick the technologies that are current and hot, try and find the young companies that are there and find out if there's an opportunity for me to help. So look, you've had this amazing, successful career, and people are listening out there, especially the younger folks. They want to know what's the secret. What's the secret? Can, do you? What's the advice that you can give to young cybersecurity professionals out there who seek to emulate what you've done with your career? Oh gosh, well, it's not all you know, hearts and flowers. <laughs> um, it you know, all all the startups don't succeed. I wonder sometimes if being in a startup is like uh, being a professional baseball player. If you bat 350, you're good enough for the big leagues. Um, and the ratios, those ratios are probably not unusual. Um, you talk to a VC sometime about how they, how many companies out of 10 they invest in succeed, and the numbers are, are mind-boggling. But in terms of my career, I guess, I look back, you know, my first job out of college was with the John Fluke Company uh, up in Everett, Washington, right next to where they make the 747s. We made voltmeters, calibrators, and real geeky stuff. And I was a double E electrical engineering graduate. And I was terrified when I started work there because all the guys around me were smarter than I was. I just wasn't a very good design engineer and thought, Oh no, you know, what, what do I do now? I put four years of college and now I'm doing this. But one day a couple of sales guys dragged me out in front of a customer because I could explain some technology in some of our products better than anyone else. And the light bulb went off. I loved it. And my advice to anyone in the industry, either in the customer side or the vendor side, get in front of customers or get in front of peers as much as you can. You know, no matter your position, networking is, you know, what's going to advance your career in cyber. 
In cybersecurity, you know, customer pains are fairly common across the market because there's hackers out there and there's bad guys out there and they use the same technologies on all of us. So across the market, you think about, you know, many customers face the same thing. They're all just trying to do their best to protect their companies. So if you talk one-on-one with customers, the more you can do that, the more you'll learn their pain, you know, what works, what doesn't, what they've tried. And if you work for a vendor, man, it makes your products that much more appropriate. And if you're within a company, you know, within a corporation trying to defend them, participate in the conferences, in the industry blogs and the platforms and whatever assets that are out there. Because this is a very, you know, one plus one is three industry. You know, learning from peers and sharing as much as you can, uh, it just, I, I can't emphasize that enough. Cybersecurity is a very shareable field of knowledge. So in the interest of that sharing, in your opinion, what is the hottest cybersecurity position in demand right now where folks, you know, can, can look to trans? for some of their skill sets in transition into so many of those jobs that are out there right now? Yeah, you know, if you, in terms of companies that have cybersecurity departments, the position, the hottest position that I see and talk to in the last couple of years probably has been the so-called security architect. And these are, at first, you know, I saw these titles start popping up and say, hey, you know, Tell me about yourself. What's your background? And I realized these are the ones, the people that are the most senior with the most experience, and they've grown up in the ranks of, they could easily have been in cybersecurity for 10 or 20 years. Um, a lot of them I knew when I was young, they were young. Now we both age together, but by gosh, you know, they're, they're the architects inside the company that help the company in so many ways. What they tend to do is they go cross discipline. So they're no longer just network or just endpoint or just data. They are true, you know, security uh, experts and they can go across uh, the company and help with a lot of high level things. They get called into projects. Um, One week they might be helping uh, software developers who are practicing DevOps and, you know, trying to write better code. Um, That's kind of a big uh, development now or a big trend and the next week, these architects might be then helping uh, the network people re-architect networks, say, to block risk from IoT. So their jobs are more diverse because they understand uh, more aspects, more levels of security than just someone who, say, is a firewall rules expert or a, a layer three uh, kind of expert. Um, the architects, I think, is a great career path. It's for people who don't want to eventually be a CISO or an executive manager of some kind. The architects are invaluable. Um, And I'll make comments later when we talk a little bit about the products we've discussed here. The architects are a very good target, very good resource for vendors to be talking with because they kind of know everything that's going on in the company and its biggest challenges. All right, cool. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back. We're going to talk about some of those products. I want to get into the cybersecurity market and get your opinion about the industry and how many companies are out there, uh, some of the hottest spaces that are going on in cybersecurity right now. We're going to talk a lot, a lot more in the next couple segments. So hang in there, uh, stick with me. But before we go to commercial break, if you're a social media junkie, and don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. 
Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, one of the most experienced and successful cybersecurity executives in the world, Chris Kenworthy. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman Soar live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, Chris Kenworthy. So, Chris... I want to talk about the cybersecurity industry and the market and get your take on a few different things here that people are really interested in. 
So the cybersecurity market seems more crowded than ever, and we've talked about this on the show with a few different guests. I want to get your thoughts on things. What say you? Sure. You're absolutely right, George. It is insanely crowded. Sometimes I say you can judge the size of the security market by how much hotel rooms cost during the RSA show in San Francisco. Um, it's tongue-in-cheek, but it's actually very true. They've become extremely dear. But indeed, you know, we all know the challenges of defending organizations against the current uh, well-established attack and breach technologies. And this has driven a record number of growth players. <clears throat> Both companies and other businesses are stepping into security uh, or new startups in the cybersecurity space. And, and I think we're at an all-time high. I know last April at RSA, there were more than 600 exhibitors, and that is a record uh, for RSA. I looked back in uh, 10 years ago, 2008, and there were about 300, and that seemed very busy at the time, but these 600 are just, uh, it's amazing to have that many new companies. I know in my business, uh, when I do advisory and consulting services, there's at least two or three other companies that I might be talking with who are not at RSA. Uh, for one reason or another. So, you know, there's got to be at least a couple thousand startups out there right now that are all vying for this space. A couple thousand, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of companies to be competing in this market. Now, aside from the obvious, and then that's the demand and the challenges we face in the market, are, you have any thoughts on why the market's just gotten so crowded? Yeah, you know, it's probably several reasons. Um, it, and it has just kind of gone crazy. There's a little bit of a cycle to it, but not much. I mean, it's mostly up and to the right. But, you know, first and foremost, as we say, there's a real need. You know, the frequency and the impact, the cost to companies now of cyber attacks has become deadly serious. You know, it's, it's, we haven't seen, you know, some of the real bad catastrophe stuff yet out there, but it's, you know, we all know what it is. It's kind of looming. The individuals and the consumers understand this really well, too. Interesting, I'm sure you run into this when you go to a cocktail party somewhere and someone says, what do you do? You know, it, I sort of like, okay, uh, okay, I'm in cybersecurity. And boy, the discussion gets interesting for the next hour. But everyone's aware of it and everyone uh, feels like uh, it needs to be addressed, which it does. So I think that that has driven more front and center attention than anything. Um, also, what I see, interestingly, is expanded technologies that are out there make more ideas seem valid. By that, I mean, you know, we, we've got artificial intelligence and all the latest buzzwords that are out there. I think more and more people are looking at this and saying, you know, the mere fact that all of our current technology, in spite of it all, breaches still happen. It makes more people think, aha, I've got the idea for something that can actually really solve the problem better than anyone that's out there. And I know I've talked to a lot of startups where the founders the technical founders uh, feel that way. That, that's what drives them. They think they actually have a secret sauce uh, that's better. Uh, and if they do, they're going to do well. But so many of them fall short. Um, or they have something that's technical but not easy to use. Um, and finally, I have to comment on the VCs. Um, all the companies that RSA generally and probably the next layer of 600 more after them tend to be VC-funded. Um, and that's a lot of money, a lot of action from the VCs. I think there's more VCs out there than ever. A lot more of them have stepped over into cyber practices because of the market. And uh, there's more limited partner money coming in than ever before. 
And if you're a VC, you're really challenged. You have to invest that money, make a good return. They're all looking for the next unicorn. And uh, obviously, this is one of the hotter markets that's out there right now. So we see a lot more VC activity probably than even 10 or 15 years ago when there were far fewer that were specialized in cyber. And I think that'll continue. Um, I think some of the VCs will tone it back a little bit, but I think you'll always have people out there with ideas that they think are going to be, you know, the, the, the next helper and uh, we'll see what happens. So, you know, getting back to the startups and the couple thousand companies that are out there competing in the market, looking to differentiate themselves from their competitors, you mentioned that they have a challenge in terms of, you know, communicating or, or marketing their products to people to, 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 I guess, tell them that, hey, look, I got a product here that's a differentiator in terms of the technology. The technology is going to make a difference. It's going to solve a problem. It's going to fill a gap. This is, this might be, it might be control uh, generated. It might be in the regulatory uh, market. It might solve a regulatory problem. But they get into this rut that you mentioned. I mean, what happens next when they get into this, this problem, when they, they, they can't market their product yeah. properly or can't reach their target market? Pretty common. It's pretty common. There's really? been a lot of writing on this recently. And honestly, remember, that's how I make my current living is I do consulting for go-to-market. And go-to-market very specifically is kind of the sales and marketing, pricing, positioning, uh, promotion, and all that. Many startups out there actually never really do get out of the gate. You know, they get a few early customers. Um, I'm thinking of one right now that I have a proposal in front of. You know, they probably have five or six good name customers, the CEO and his, uh, and his co-founder and the software guy, they've gone out and gotten these customers on their own, you know, bless their heart. But that's not a go-to-market process. Um, so many startups will take their early money and focus all their energy and resources on their invention and their development. You know, there's one more feature, just, you know, we're going to work around the clock here and you know, get our 1.0 and our 1.1 up and out, um, and they're running low on money, and then they realize, okay, we've got to figure out how to really bring this thing to market. Um, it's common in, in high tech where companies going to be running out of money like that, but they do have a few customers. They go back to their VCs and say, hey, you know, we need a little more money here, but everything's, the product's looking good. Um, I'll tell you, that's when the VCs make their money because, uh, if they can get money, it's usually a down round or very expensive in terms of equity. And the startups didn't think about go to market or really, you know, what are we going to do to sell this thing early enough? Most startups, you know, they're proud of their technology and, and they should be. But, you know, we always think uh, our technology is so good that people will recognize it for what it is. You get to a senior security architect, well, he or she will be impressed. And uh, I think many startups underestimate uh, the amount of focus and energy it takes to really bring something to market and do it right. So considering this, we've got 2,000 companies out there. Do you, know, do you have any idea what the rate of failure might be? Or, or you know, are all these startups going to survive? Obviously not, but I, do you have a, a, a sense yeah, of what I, I, don't, I don't know the numbers. It, it's certainly more than half, just sheer numbers. You know, there can't be that many new companies that survive five years um, just from a market standpoint. Um, it's, it's probably more than half. Wow. I know I talked to a lot of startups at RSA uh, and kind of did my own little tally. Uh, we can come back to that here shortly. But, it's you know, there's a lot of people out there with good ideas that down the road, 
you know, not real sure what's going to happen there. Um, you know, like I said, 10 years ago, you could, uh, the, the evolution has also muddied the waters to the point where you're not real sure what this new company stands for or what it does. Um, I keep going back 10 years. Think about 10 years ago. You knew if you walked to RSA and walked the show, you knew you had firewall companies and antivirus companies and gateways and encryption is probably one of the newer things right then. But you had companies that this is what we do. And uh, your security people uh, inside companies, they knew they had to buy a firewall or they had to update their antivirus or some of the other security technologies. But everyone kind of knew what everyone did. Um, the market was fairly clear. Probably about that time was when we started to see things spin off and more things would happen. You know, the WAF came out. Um, I remember when NAC was big, it was going to be like, oh, that's going to you know set the world on fire. Uh, network access control, DLP, you know, the next big thing, whitelisting, uh, SIM, MDM, many other technologies. And boy, the market's gotten a lot blurrier. And it became harder for the cybersecurity departments, the poor customers, to decide on what to analyze, what to invest in this year. You know, there are a lot of times when I meet with customers, I'd say, so what are your priorities? You know, what's your what are you working on this year and next year? And just kind of get a feel because you can't do everything this year. And a lot of them, yeah, we're going to, we're going to knack, you know, jumping in with both feet or, you know, we might be a financial institution. We're very worried about DLP looking for something that's effective there. Um, you know, a lot of the embedded, the pre embedded security people looked at whitelisting. Um, amazingly in the old days, uh, bank, ATMs uh, typically ran Windows more often than not, and they ran antivirus. And getting a signature updates to an ATM was real challenging. They embraced whitelisting as soon as it became uh, viable because it's perfect application uh, for whitelisting. And that's really kind of what put whitelisting on the map. Um, a lot of peer discussions started to pop up then. And that was really when, if you're in cybersecurity working for a company, back then was when they people started talking to each other and realizing, you know, I got a buddy down the street. He works for a competitive bank. So I guess we're competitors, but really not. We're both in cyber. Let's start trading stories and experiences and the leverage would increase. And I remember I would make a lot of customer meetings all around the world with, you know, a lot of big fortune 100, 200s, and they all started talking to each other. And that was great because you could hear what so-and-so thought about, other technologies and you know the market was really starting to get active. It got a lot more complicated. Think back, if your listeners think back, the first time they heard about the kill chain, um, Lockheed Martin, I think, were the ones that formalized it, but the concept has been around for a while. That was when we all woke up and realized the difference between a hack and a breach. And the kill chain described it fairly well. It was internal. Uh, on-prem, but the concept was there. And that was when suddenly people realized that, hey, I got to start pulling a lot of these technologies together. So I need a little technology to do this and a little to do that. It's got to work together. Um, and that increased the challenge, I think, you know, by a factor of 10 because people realized, aha, I mean, the data exfiltrate, data theft is probably the one thing we're trying to guard against. And a data exfiltration as step eight of the kill chain was just 
you know, what you wanted to avoid. So all the technologies and the startups begin to say, here's where we fit in the kill chain. And that helped to some extent. Um, but again, the VCs were going crazy. Everyone had good ideas. And, uh, you know, we still just got overwhelmed with new technology. And I'll couple that with one other thing I noticed right about then, maybe, what, five, six years ago, is artificial intelligence began to be the buzzword, you know, machine learning, AI, deep learning, all that. And uh, I swear, half the companies I talked to at RSA last April, I said, what do you do? I said, oh, well, we use artificial intelligence and machine learning to, they couldn't really articulate how the customer would use it. It could tell me how their technology employed AI, but they couldn't really say in the end, how's the customer better off with it? So I think the confusion out there for end users is, is you know, end users put up with a lot of the marketing and, and, and communication, but I think the confusion's kind of at an all-time high right now. So with all this confusion and complexity in the marketplace, and it's extremely overcrowded, which startups are going to succeed? Which are the ones that are poised to win? Yeah, yeah, good, great question. That, that's the $64 million question. <laughs> it First is. of all, I, I recall in one of your previous episodes, if I might interject, about a, is there a bubble? And I call it the bulge. Not The, the bubble implies it's going to pop and something's going to be you know, sudden. And I don't think it'll be sudden, but I do think that certainly not all these companies can survive. So the bulge, you know, kind of it's grown out a little bit, but then we'll grow into it as a market. You know, first, it's a numbers game. So if you think of a thousand or more startups out there, that market just can't absorb all that. And if there's 20 or 30 startups, each trying to do something similar in a new space, you know, a couple of them will probably succeed. A couple will get bought. You know, the majority will not uh, pass muster on that. Um, but again, if the cybersecurity teams are so busy, they don't have time to look at yet a new technology and decide whether or not it's going to impact their company well. That's probably hardest for startups to understand. They think, wow, I've got a great new technology. Now how do I get to the customer? And say, Again, you got to really provide something um, that the customers, you know, solves a pain point and the customers look at it and says it's going to be real positive. Um, also at RSA, when I'm talking to, as many people as I could, I ask them what current technologies that enterprises buy could you replace? Because that's a leg up and, and that's how a startup can, can survive and probably do better than their peer is to be able to say, you know what, today you might be buying this and this. We can do a better job for you. You combine two technologies and save you money. Um, it's not easy to do, but again, when you're trying to really defend uh, against something like, I don't want to emphasize the kill chain too much, but if you're trying to defend against certain steps in that, and you can do so with better technology, replacing something they buy today is a real plus. Because otherwise it's an incremental sale and the budgets just aren't going up that fast. So I don't know if you can answer this question or not, but I'm going to ask it. And then maybe if you can answer it specifically, maybe you can give us an inference of maybe what domains are doing really good in the cybersecurity space or or something along those lines. But out of these companies that are competing for this, this market, which one specifically do you see providing that real value that people are looking for in the cybersecurity space? Yeah, you know, 
let me comment. There will always be a few big winners. Um, you know, everything, everything points in the right direction at the right time. Um, and they're either in new spaces or, you know, they can be companies that have moved into, you know, I call them the meat and potato spaces, but, you know, we're always going to buy any malware. We're always going to buy firewalls. We're always going to buy some other stuff like that. They're not going away. Um, but you look at some vendors out there, you know, Palo Alto, Proofpoint, uh, Imperva, Splunk comes to mind, Veracode. These are all relatively new vendors that have made it big. Um, and they provide good, valuable products. Some of them are solid foundational products. Others are kind of new. You know, Veracode moved into the app security space kind of at the right time uh, and a few others. Um, the next layer of startups, there's your exit can still be successful, air quotes there, um, but not as big, but you get acquired by somebody bigger and you become a feature in their product. So you can get acquired by Palo Alto and just become one of the features uh, in one of their offerings. Um, it's not a bad exit for startups and the big companies are always looking for good deals in that space. A few of the others are just going to fade. You know, they'll get sold for pennies on the dollar or just fade away. I think, in my opinion, I think probably the hottest areas right now that are at least easier to have customer access, get in front of customers and have good conversations right now, probably cloud security, uh, app security, uh, and certainly IoT. So let's talk um, those about those are probably more. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about them. How about cloud security? What do you see happening in that market? You know, cloud security is it's a great example. That's coming back to the cocktail party. What do you do? I mean, cybersecurity. Right. Someone will always say, do you think the cloud is secure? It, always get asked that question. My answer is always the same. You know, it's as, it's as secure as the company uh, that is providing the service and the company that's buying the service. Um, it's just, you know, you just need good cybersecurity technology and hygiene, if you will, uh, when you think about the cloud, there's some expanded requirements that are a little different. Um, and it has to do with companies, it, you know, companies that go to the cloud for whatever reason, they can take existing apps and just as is pick them up and run them in the cloud, or they can write totally new ones or anywhere in between. Each of those imply different things that they might need from a security standpoint. Um, I think personally it helps to think of the old CIA model uh, when you think about cloud security, you know, the confidentiality, integrity, availability, right. because that runs you through the checklist of saying, okay, wait a minute, what's when I'm, when I'm going to use the cloud now, what's changed? Um, and you think about the fundamentals there in CIA, well, someone has to encrypt the data, you know, your apps and your data. Someone has to think through, are there new or unusual demands for INA? identity and access management, you know, trust and privilege management. Um, do we, who addresses the vulnerabilities uh, in platform security that are making up the cloud? Uh, that's all still evolving as to who does what, but probably the best thing that, that customers can do is strong due diligence. That is, don't jump in, uh, don't just sign up next month because it's on your list of things to do. You do due diligence, talk to the vendor and, and ask them these questions. What, what do I do? You know, what do we do together here to make sure that 
some of these fundamentals are addressed from a security standpoint. Um, and I think all the big guys are doing a pretty good job. They all have hired and recruited and set up good uh, security practices. But I think we as an industry are still kind of learning, you know, what changes from a security standpoint. There will be vendors that specialize in this. And ultimately, then you as the customer or the customer vendor will be buying from these vendors and putting some of these technologies in place that I just mentioned here. So you also mentioned application security, and that's another hot domain. What do you think is happening in that space? Yeah, that's uh, that's real interesting space. I actually saw, we all saw the CA uh, software factory commercial on television a while back. I had to grin. It was kind of the first mainstream television commercial that addressed cybersecurity. Um, that was uh, heartening to see that and actually a very interesting notion. Um, but I think app security is being driven uh, recently by this big wave of so-called digital transformation. Um, big word, we've all heard about it and, and read about it. Uh, what does digital transformation really mean? But, you know, it is, in a nutshell, I mean, every company is kind of digital uh, assets or processes used to be tactical. Uh, now they're part of the survival of every business out there. Um, two quick examples, you know, you can order pizza from Domino's now, the tactical example of digital transformation. More importantly, I like to use the example, imagine a bank today that handles no cash. What will it look like in five years? Right. And that is digital transformation. There may not be buildings anymore. Everything, Everything's online. Um, if you think about it, it's just one big app. It takes in money and, you know, collects interest, pays out stuff. This is one big app. Um, so digital transformation is making all kinds of companies have to step up and say, we're going to embrace online and digital technology. In doing so, the software developers have become uh, visible, if you will. The spotlight's on them and said, hey, we're tracking back vulnerabilities, uh, susceptibility to breach, you know, costs in, in updates and all that. A lot of that has to do with the code that's being written. So we've got to write better code. Um, and Agile software developed for a long time. And it was primarily to allow companies to write uh, code faster, get it to market fast cost. I think DevOps has popped up now. It's a combination of software development and IT operations. So you're starting to use some of the IT operations processes to track software development, get it into your company's operations. And guess what? The new buzzword then is now DevSecOps or you know, adding security to that. And that's where the companies like Veracode and others kind of pop up. Um, and they started doing you know, SAST and DAST and RASP and all the other acronyms out there, but they're all small, a lot of small startups and are growing very well right now, trying to provide ways that companies can write better code. And effectively, the code that comes out the back has less vulnerabilities to begin with, and they're easier to identify and repair back when they're still on the drawing board, where it's low cost. So tech companies and startups that can integrate with that whole uh, software development environment along with using kind of 
IT release procedures and that, I think they'll do very well in this space. I think it'll be hot. Um, a lot of big companies are starting to look at it. IBM, uh, a bunch of others uh, are starting to look at this, and I think we'll see more money spent there. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the Internet of Things. This is a big one. I think this is one of the biggest <laughs> ones in the space, right? The IoT space. What do you see happening there? It's huge. Huge. It's huge. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, you put, get your mind around it. It's, I mean, it's everything. It's, suddenly people are putting things on the Internet. We all know the stories, but if you think about it, um, the way the Internet grew in the last, what, 20 years, it apps were put on the internet before security was thought about. And that's kind of how we all got our jobs in this space. Same thing's happening with IOT now. Um, we understand that the devices are increasing rapidly. You know, we've all seen the buzzwords and the numbers, but you think beyond traditional servers and endpoints, things that we in cyber have protected for the last 10 years and now introduce stuff that's new. Uh, Printers. I know we someone a while back. You know, oh, we have to secure the printers because they have hard drives in them. Uh, that was interesting. That was a probably putting your toe in the water of IoT. But everything. You know, we've heard all the stories of refrigerators, the TVs. You know, now the cars and the solar panels and all this. Clearly, they're all on the internet, uh, and they make up what is commonly thought of IoT. But IP connectivity adds so much operational value that the whole industrial side of things is booming and often thought of less. Um, the implication there is, you know, the whole industrial control systems and building systems and all that. Um, I think many of them, many of those vendors have found out, hey, I can just plug this into an Ethernet connection bingo, I can control uh, things that I used to dial in or have to drive out in the middle of an oil field and test, you know, twice a week. Now I'm online using satellite or Wi-Fi, and suddenly uh, these things are all connected. And I think um, the industrial people and the cyber people are kind of meeting in the middle and saying, whoa, we need to have another look at this. This is very classic. It's the benefits of connectivity are driving way faster and we as an industry can address the security and risk implications. And I think it'll probably be the hottest area that we'll be looking at in the near future. All right, Chris, this is interesting stuff. We got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from Chris Kenworthy after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. 
Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, Chris Kenworthy. And so, Chris, we were talking a little bit before the break about some of these emerging technologies in cloud security and application security. We touched on IoT a little bit. But I want to ask you, with all these emerging and disruptive technologies, how about the risks that they introduce into the environment? And what should professionals be doing to mitigate them? Yeah, let's, um, let, let me answer that first with IoT very spe- specifically, because I think by far that's probably the biggest game changer we're going to see in cybersecurity uh, in business operation perhaps here in the next few years easily. Um, you know, I, we all know what IoT is. It's, uh, it's staggering the implication that it's going to have here if we think through a couple areas. I mean, everything, everything that connects to a network becomes operational uh, and controllable via uh, connectivity and and that's wonderful it's it's a breakthrough for all those technologies but at the same time the risk to companies is just now being felt and i like to say there's really two air think about two exposures that you have with iot today it helps people understand and segment the market one is someone comes along a bad guy comes along bad actor and hacks an iot device gets onto the network and then through lateral movement finds the tra- traditional assets, your servers and your databases and all that, and does traditional hacking and ultimately data exfiltration and boom, you've had a breach. So they, an example of that would be the security cameras. We heard all those last year. Um, that's real. Where someone gets in a Wi-Fi enabled security camera, they get into your corporate network. Next thing you know, you know they're in there for two or three months, kill chain activates and you've had a breach. Um, that is an IoT issue because it's the Wi-Fi camera that let them in. The other one that people look at is people hacking into IoT devices to interfere with the actual operation of those devices. 
and and the examples could be you know shutting down building operations. Um, some of these can be really scary when you think about it because you're interfering with industrial systems, um, power grids, you know, air traffic control. You know, we've all heard the sensational things there, but those are real. And it could be just as simple as, again, surveillance for a company, or it could be as complex as a nuclear power plant. All of those are, are connected one way or another, and they really haven't addressed that security issue. So that's what IoT is kind of bringing to the table here. And either it's the cyber people are meeting with the industrial people and saying, hey, we have a collective problem here, or the industrial people are going merrily along their way, plugging things into these cool Ethernet ports, and then suddenly the security people say, hey, we don't know what we have out there. So IoT, watch this space. I think a lot of companies are going to do well here in the future. So I think this is a whole new arena for a lot of folks out there. They're trying to implement this new disruptive technology into their environments, but they're also, I don't think they're even ready to handle the risk that these, these new technologies sort of deliver into their organizations. So how can a new cybersecurity company, one of these startups that have these technologies, how can these companies work to address their customers' needs and still manage this, this risk? Yeah, exactly. You know, it, we, we as professionals in cyber, we wouldn't know what to do if we did say, hey, you have an industrial control that has a vulnerability because um, you can't patch them. Um, perhaps it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to mitigate them. But I think the technicals, the cyber startups today that are probably getting traction, most traction in the IoT space are ones that do a really good job of discovering and identifying what you have out there. And I've talked to several, none of whom yet are able to say, to tell the company what to do once I find everything that I have. You know, very few of them can even identify vulnerabilities yet. So there's, you know, easiest example is an IP telephone on your desk. It could be vulnerable, and it's on your network, certainly, because it's an IP phone. And if it's vulnerable, what do you do? Uh, some of them are not patchable. Some of the new ones are, but even that's kind of a pain. But the old ones that are not patchable, they still operate. So you either uh, write firewall rules to route around it, or you try and have uh, different net network segments on which they operate, or you throw them out and you get new ones. Um, I think the best companies serving this right now are going to crawl, walk, run. They're going to start with identification and discovery, and we're going to see companies begin to advise on solutions. This is what you do next. But I don't see any companies taking action yet. I think very few companies are doing more than seeing what they have, and that alone can be a real eye-opener. So what are companies to do then with all these, these challenges that they're facing that you just described? I mean, how do they go about this? Well, see, that I think expands the whole cybersecurity world. Uh, you, you think about it, it just opens up a whole other door or doubles it in width. And that is suddenly you're going to get experts in industrial control systems who understand, you know, how to address vulnerabilities. In some of these things are very valuable and they're not about uh, to replace them. You know, big old mechanical things, you know, have a 20 year life and they have a vulnerability in them. So what do you do? I think we're going to, we're going to have experts uh, in architecture so that we back away from everything in one flat network, start having networks uh, that are dedicated more to this. And you think about, as I say that, 
think about the gateways and the firewalls that could route these networks and route all these devices. There's a whole level of technology that doesn't exist today. I think companies are just starting to think about that. Um, as I say, the, all the IoT companies I've talked to right now, all they really do is give you a very nice and startling report. But I do think it's going to be addressed because, you know, they have to. Sooner or later, something really bad is going to happen because of these, uh, these technologies there. So considering the new technologies, how disruptive they are, and the risks that they impose, how do these startups beat the odds? We talked a lot about startups in the, in the first couple segments. Now, of course, there's a lot of big companies out there that are introducing these new technologies, but for the startups specifically, it seems to be like a huge challenge to me. I mean, how, how can they beat the odds and be better received by enterprises when they deliver their technology? Yeah, you know, it's, it, startups can focus on something, you know, have a laser focus, and that's their only job. So they can, there's a few out there that have done very well, specifically with IoT, then coming back to the market in general. But with IoT, it's all we do is go out there and identify everything that's out there. We show you, we, we make it downloadable uh, in a big report that you can analyze. We are preparing a database that says, you know, uh, all the vulnerabilities that we can discover uh, in the world begin to set up a, a so-called vulnerability database for non, you know, non-traditional computing devices, things like that. Startups can move quickly in that area. And, you know, the bigger companies are looking at you know, Cisco and IBM and everybody is going to keep looking at this, but it's the startups that are going to move quickly and at least bring that to market. <clears throat> and, and I think the industry then will decide all right, what's the next thing we want to do? Um, I don't think there's a consulting firm out there yet that can advise a company. If you have 5,000 nodes in your network and 3,000 of them are industrial or IoT related, what do you do? I don't think anyone can answer that yet. But I think we will, together, the startups that, that emerge here are going to be able to help companies. And obviously, a few of those will get bought by some of those bigger companies I mentioned. Right. The irony, you ask what can startups, you know, increase their odds in general. Um, it kind of comes back to, you know, it. what does a startup provide? What, what are the pain points that are out there? IoT is one pain point, but there are plenty of others. And, you know, it all boils down to a startup should seek to solve real pain that they know about, that they understand well, uh, with smart and simple products. Um, it, I mentioned earlier, there's too many products out there that rely that that are so cool. They rely on the security architect uh, to make them work, and the cool factor is something that they are very excited about. But in the end, you know, companies want results. Um, they want smart and simple products that uh, don't cost them a lot to operate, or it's just too complex for them to bring it into their company. Now you brought this up, and and I, and I have the same opinion. And I think there's just so so many cybersecurity products out there that, that provide these very cool sort of visibility and, and and management functions in their technology, but they require so much continuous time and attention from these high-level security architects and engineers from their customers. I mean, so how do startups address that problem? Yeah, you know, those companies, if they don't address that problem, they're going to fail. Huh. Because it, I've, I've been on plenty of customer meetings where the customer, the senior architects in the room have looked at the product and said, that's great. You know, who's going to use it? Uh, how do we use it? And I get back to the so-called day in the life. 
Um, I mentioned it earlier. It's, you know, if you're, if you're a startup or a small company or, or a product manager of any kind, and you want to do something that's relevant and going to sell well, you have to understand how the customer is really going to use it. Um, you need to want to, I, I learned way back at Fluke, you know, you got to want to succeed rather than have your own way. And that's hard to do for the product people to say, I'm not a typical customer. I need to talk to ones who are. I need to talk to a lot of customers and get the realistic feedback and find out, you know, every, from when they get up in the morning till they go to sleep at night, how do they interact with my product? And do they like it? And, and if you have to have a security architect sitting in front of a screen making decisions all day, that won't fly. Because remember, those architects get called on five different projects every right. week. Uh, they're just too much in demand. Um, so the best products are the ones that can do a lot of thinking for you. You can have you know, lower cost people perhaps kind of do the care and feeding. But uh, until the yellow or red light goes off, you don't have to bother the architects at all and have the product do as much of the, the thinking uh, on behalf of the process as possible. Um, ultimately, you have to be able to show the customer that your products can decrease their workload, uh, and then you'll get their attention, and the architect can become your greatest ally in that case. But otherwise, there's so many people out there with great inventions that just, you know, well, of course someone's going to want to see all that data. What are they going to do with it? Well, you know, the bottom line is they don't need it all. They only need the aberrations. Right. So, look, we were talking about the security architect in the first couple of segments of the show. And we talked a little bit here about cybersecurity engineers. You know, I brought up the role of the engineer. And I've heard a lot of um, surveys. I've seen a lot of surveys that came back and said the cybersecurity engineer is the most des- uh, desired job in terms of salary even compared to the even assist. I saw one survey and I wish I could, you know, I could uh, tell you what it is. It's slipping my mind right now, but that as cybersecurity engineers, a lot of times get paid more than even assist those two. And I've heard a lot of different definitions of an engineer. So what do you define as a cybersecurity engineer? Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, I think architect and engineer can, there's some overlap depending on a company and how they, how they label them. But to me, an engineer, and I'm an engineer, so and by trade, uh, but more importantly, an engineer to me is someone who designs solutions. Um, it's the, you know, your operations people tend to run things or, you know, use systems or sit in front of screens uh, or run stuff that's already built. Um, and they're the ones that can look at reports or look at yellow lights and make decisions, easy decisions. The engineers, Cybersecurity engineer are the ones that design the systems in the first place. And they sit down and say, okay, we're going to introduce a new banking process and therefore we need to secure it. And they're the ones that sit back and say, here's everything we need to make sure we do to secure it. Um, they identify really what's needed to address the problem. Um, it, it, to me, the engineering is a great, you know, the designing the solution is kind of a great skill and if the engineers have it they are very high paid because it's sort of okay here's what i want to do you know i want to introduce this this and this to the engineer please make it as secure as possible as secure as reasonable tell me what we need um, i always say you can tell the most active engineers uh, in a meetings when you go in because they're the first ones to grab the pen and jump up to the whiteboard um, and they're the ones that are thinking and drawing and pulling it all together. Uh, the architects perhaps are more 
they do advisory. They advise the software developers on on best practices, perhaps for secure code. They advise the network architects on re-architecting uh, to segment IoT and things like that. The engineers are the ones that actually design uh, new systems like that, and that's probably as equally uh, exciting a career as the architect. So to kind of wind this all down and to summarize everything we spoke about, it, it, all in all, it sounds like a great time to be in cybersecurity, right? It sounds like it's an exciting time. People pouring lots of money into it. There's lots of jobs. There's lots of things to learn. There's all these innovative and disruptive technologies out there. Is it really as good as all the hype? You know, yes. Well, it's my career, of course, but it's kind of a double-edged sword. The reason it's so good is because the world is so bad. And that, you know, this isn't doom and gloom, but we all know, you know, the, the adversaries that are out there are really well organized and they're not going to go away anytime soon. I mean, the bottom line is cyber, cyber crime pays mightily and it's here to stay. Um, so is this a great time to be in cybersecurity? Of course, if you're on the good side, uh, probably if you're on the bad side too, but we are... Those of us who, who are doing this as a profession, you know, we're finding the great job prospects, you know, urgent corporate hiring, recruiting, you know, companies are stealing people from each other, sort of uh, mindless and non-productive, but there's a lot of that going around as the salaries go up. But the world faces more cyber risk than ever. And, you know, we haven't, it's, it's almost like bailing out the ocean. We really haven't seen yet the bigger things that can happen with IOT or nation states and all that. Um, so those aren't going away at all. I think short term, we're just going to continue to see demand for security professionals kind of in the traditional way. And there's just, there aren't enough. You know, I think everyone's seen the numbers for every hundred people working today in the U S there's 15 job openings right. for every hundred people working in cybersecurity today, there are 40 job openings. So we're not going to solve that anytime soon. I think what we need is an opportunity for better leverage. You know, I mentioned before a while back when peer discussions that people started picking up their phone, calling each other in the security space and comparing notes. I think we have an opportunity to formalize that a lot more and make people more productive, make the engineers and the architects in their roles more productive because they have more formal places uh, to get information and deposit information and talk to each other. Your task force seven initiative that you talked about is moving in that direction. And I think that's exactly the kind of thing that's going to help the industry because we just can't hire enough people fast enough, but we are getting smarter at it. Um, or it's easier to recognize and at least it's kind of top of mind and, you know, the, the shortage of money is less so now in IT than it used to be. So all in all, I think it's a great place to be. Well, Chris, it's, it's been an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. Someone with so much knowledge and expertise in the cybersecurity space. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, George. So we've run out of time, folks, but before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. 
Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.